1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by J.J. Cooper. Hello, everybody. Interesting day today, J.J. So... Fun day. On February 5th, 2018, you came out with an article that basically proposed a tank tax, that teams that lose a certain number of games over consecutive years... Or, um, as I would put it, I guess, the optimistic way, fail to win enough. Would then get penalized in the draft. They would Mm -hmm. lose draft spots. On February 5th, 2019, exactly one year to the day from which you wrote that article or proposed that, word comes out through uh, Ken Rosenthal at The Athletic that that is officially a part of a proposal the Major League Baseball Players Association has presented to the owners about things they'd like to see changed, in part due to, we've seen free agent market really uh, cool down to say the least. Part of that is less teams being competitive than ever before. So. One year ago, this is just a theory, an idea that you propose. A year later, it's now officially on the table. Or just a version of it. A, there's, there's A, a, little a version different. of it. A little so so yeah. take us through what you had in mind when you wrote the article and then what some of the key similarities and key differences are and what's officially been proposed.
0: So the, the thing that stood out is, is that we are now in a system. I'll go, I'll go granular for this year for just a second. I'm writing a column about this right now that I'll – I have about 10 that I've started, so maybe hopefully I'll finish this one. But, um, so, the Orioles last year were one of the worst teams that anyone listening to this podcast will ever see in your lifetime. They were the second worst team of the past 50 years. That's really bad. There have been two teams in the past 50 years who failed to win 50 games. The Orioles are one of them. Okay, it happens, they were awful, they tore down at the deadline, that all makes sense. We're sitting here, the trucks are on their way to spring training. And I'll ask you, Kyle, what is the most significant move that the Orioles have made? I'm gonna put you on the spot, and don't worry, I won't actually leave you on the spot, but what is the most significant move that the Orioles have made this off season, saying, wow,
1: we were horrible last year. We've gotta do better. Probably drafting Richie Martin at the top of the Rule 5 draft. That is their most significant addition. That is absolutely, it could be Richie Martin, it could be Drew Jackson. Those two guys are battling for
0: their starting shortstop job right now because the other moves that the Orioles have made is they've waived some guys, they've claimed some guys on waivers. That's it. Now, I don't even blame the Orioles for doing that. The system that we are in right now, it, there are advantages to picking one-one, although as I had someone put it to me, you know, you can win 58 games and go one and get one-one. There's no benefit; you don't get any bonus for winning 40 games, um, but for only winning 40 games. But the Orioles right now are making no attempt, effectively, to improve the 2019 big league ball club, because as the system currently exists there's no real reason to. Like, they're gonna be really bad. They're almost assuredly gonna get the, they're right now on pace to get the number one pick again next year, you know, after having, they'll have it this upcoming draft because they were so bad. They will have, you know, the advantages as far as bonus allotment that come with that. And beyond that, we are now in a world where I'm not saying there aren't going to be Oriole fans who grumble about it, but the reality of it is, is it is kind of accepted that, no, being awful and spending no money to be awful is a better approach than trying to be mediocre on your way to eventually being good. And the, the idea being, the tank tax idea is, is let's create incentives where being downright awful, and my proposal, I think the, their, theirs is slightly different, but my proposal was, let's say that the bar is is if you fail to win 70 games in back-to-back years, you are a sub-70 win team, which is a, still, let's make it clear, a really bad team. But if you do, fail to do that, then you suffer a draft pick penalty. Their version is 15 spots. My version was 10 the first year. I think 10 is enough. Um, but the idea being... Let's create incentives that if you are a terrible team last year, you have incentive to try to be better this year. And, you know, that's kind of what it is.
1: And I think one thing that's important to point out here is the volume and really what happened in 2018 as the next step to taking this from being an article you wrote to something that all of a sudden feels tangible. In 2018, there was a record eight teams with 95-plus losses. That has never happened in Major League Baseball before, that many teams that bad. On top of that, you wrote that article in February, I followed up with an article during the season Mm -hmm. where I laid out, there had never been, I'm sorry, there had been only one time in Major League history there were two 110 lost teams. That was when the Potters and Expos were expansion franchises. Which
0: Which is an entirely different scenario, like when you set up the rules that, they essentially start from almost scratch, which, that was an after effect, like, again, going a little baseball history for a second. The Royals were too good too soon. The Royals had success very quickly as an expand- relatively quickly, as an expansion team. So then the next expansion rolled around. Baseball looked at it and said, we're not going to let them do that again. And the Expos and all paid. the, the you know.
1: So, so you have that last year. Only because the Royals rallied at the very end did we not have two 110-loss teams again. So we were talking about a level of losing at the 95-plus loss barometer that had never been seen before. We almost had an 110-loss barometer that was record-tying with two expansion franchises, and. While there were some teams that, yes, we thought going in maybe looked like they didn't do enough to you know, advance their competitive time frame, like the Rays that ended up being competitive, at the end of the day, you saw more teams trail toward the back than we saw teams take an unexpected leap up to the front. And now you're just seeing it kind of compound. And one of the things I thought was interesting that, that John Moselak, who I interviewed for this article, talked about was what was available to teams under the 2012 collective bargaining agreement, where you could tank and rebuild, they're trying to replicate what the Astros and Cubs did, those same rules are no longer in effect for teams that are doing this now. You don't have unlimited draft spending at your disposal. You don't have unlimited international spending at your disposal. So a lot of teams were doing this tanking, trying to replicate the Cubs and Astros, without actually having the ability to rebuild the way the Cubs and Astros did. So it seems like...
0: Well, I, but actually, I would argue that in some ways, though, the more that you limit spending, especially in the draft, The same draft rules do apply. The the draft rules are every bit the same as they were in in 2012 as far as we are now in a system. The, The caps are a lot lower now. You can spend a lot less money. That is true. And they have flattened it a little bit. The number one advantage is not as much as it was in 2012. But the point being, in 2011 and before, you could be bad or you could be mediocre or you could be good. And if you wanted to spend in the draft, you could. Now we have created a system where, no, you cannot. If you, there is no way the Royals,
1: the Pirates. You have to be bad to spend in the draft. You can't be good and spend in the draft.
0: The Royals, Pirates, and then at the very end of that system, the Red Sox and a couple others were like, you know what? The Red Sox had the year that they basically said, we're no longer going to lose a guy who's going to end up being a good player down the road because of a difference of $50,000 or $100,000. And so... Right. Under the old system, you could do that. Under the new system, and again, then now they brought it to international as well, they have basically limited that there's no way. Like, if you want to spend money in the draft, you have to have either pick at the top or have multiple picks. That's the only way you can.
1: Which basically means letting your free agents go, Mm -hmm. failing to sign a top pick because you want too much money. It compounds. And so moving back to the tank tax, you would set the threshold at 90 losses, Again, a 90-loss season happens, it's just things go wrong, injuries, whatever. But for you, was it, it was the second year of a second straight 90-loss season you see the penalties come in, and do you think that's too soon? Because I could see the argument for, okay, three straight years you're getting unlucky, but I can see scenarios where a 90-loss season happens, things fall apart, and all of a sudden, hey, you have a bunch of bad contracts, guys who are hurt, you might not have the money to spend to really improve your team. In a second 90-loss season, sometimes that just happens. To me, it's when you start getting three, four, then it starts getting intentional.
0: Oh. I, I, again, we're now, in, it is very possible that yes, that there is a better version of like where you set the penalties and all. I will say, the, to me, all of this comes down to however you set the boundaries of the game, then the teams will play within the boundaries that you present. And so when you say like, okay, to take for instance, let's take the Orioles last year. You know, they understandably, I get it, why they completely tore it down. They they ripped that any one line last year's team who had trade value, they traded. Now let's also note in most cases, Manny Machado, one of the better players in the game, netted one top 100 prospect in return. Kevin Gossman and Brad Brack, who are valuable big leaguers, Kevin Gossman's gonna be a valuable big leaguer who was not, Kevin Gossman's case, was not headed to free agency. But Kevin Gossman and Brad Brack and Darren Day basically were traded in a salary dump where the Orioles received no one, no prospect of significance in return from one of the best farm teams from one of the best best systems in baseball, and a deal where the braves could look at it and say they don't even need to question because they look at it and say yes you want our 20th best prospect as the cornerstone of this deal done and kevin gossman from that day was immediately one of the best starters in the braves rotation my idea with this is is you're right two years is kind of punitive in some ways but It also means it may be that there is times where you say, I mean, these players are often being traded. There are exceptions. The Nationals traded Jesus Luzardo in a deadline deal, you know, a couple of years ago. uh, And Blake Trinan, they kind of lost that deal with the uh, Madsen and... uh, uh,
1: Sean Doolittle, Ryan Madsen, who, in fairness, Doolittle's been great and he did what they expected him to
0: do in that trade. Right. But however, you wouldn't want to, in hindsight, Jesus Luzardo and Blake Trinan, who's been better than, you know, the guys that they got... Okay, they lost that trade. But most of the time, when teams trade at the deadline, the viewpoint right now is a lot of times for even a good player, it's, you know what, we're terrible. We're not getting much back in the form of prospects, but we are getting salary relief. That's a lot of times. You've studied this. Most of the prospects traded at the deadline are are, are never going to be Productive big
1: leaguers. Uh, what I found when I looked at it last year was in deadline trades, the prospect for veteran trades, I believe it was 79% of the time, the veteran produced more than the prospects ever did down the road in the future. Less than 20% of those prospects, or just over 20% of those prospects, ever so, did anything. This would possibly change the dynamic of
0: that because if you're a team that is on your way to 68, 69 wins, you might keep Kevin You might Gossman. say, you know what? The value of Kevin Gossman, who, by the way, again, let me note, the Orioles were not going to lose Gossman after the season. That, they, that the, the, It may be better to keep those guys. And again, I know the Orioles are an extreme case, but take an example of it. Again, we've had a lot of teams finish with 67, 68, 69 wins. Okay, under this system, what we're trying to do is create a structure where being downright awful is worse for you than being bad or mediocre. And for the game as a whole, I do believe that the game is better if, again, I know a seventy a 75-win team is not something that gets a fan base excited. But this Orioles team that is going to take the field this year, barring some unexpected last-minute signings, This Orioles team is going to take the field, not just going to be an awful experience to watch if you're going to Camden Yards in Baltimore, for Baltimore Orioles fans, but it's going to be the same thing when they hit the road. If you're in Toronto or if you're in New York or if you're in wherever they are, it's going to be like, oh, the
1: Orioles are in town. Well, why do I want to go watch that? Only if tickets cost $8.
0: Right, and again, we do have pricing now that will... the The pricing for them, they will be the... Cheapest tickets you can get every time.
1: And you make the point that, again, having more teams even be remotely competitive, you know, a team that wins 75, 7, 77 games, you say, you know what, there's some talented players on the field. It's still, you know, a fun way to go spend a Friday night. You don't necessarily, as a fan, feel like you're wasting your money. Whereas if it's a 46-win team or a 52-win team, and you know from day one, God, these guys are going to be historically bad, eh, let's take our money and do something else. I, I do want to point out, mm-hmm. and you made the point that the overall incentive here is trying to make it so it's better for teams to be mediocre than truly horrible. Keep in mind the Players Association is who proposes not the owners. Mm-hmm. And for the Players Association, what this means, and this is an article I'm working on, one of the ideas that a lot of people on the player side of the game have talked about is look, of course, the, you're not going to get the type of contracts these players are seeking when you only really have, from the get go, 10, 12, maybe 14 teams having any legitimate interest in them when half the league or a third of the league from the get-go says, we're not signing anybody. You limit the amount of teams that this player can negotiate with and it ultimately depresses the salary offers they receive. So for the player's association perspective, the idea, and there, there's going to be flaws here, there's probably going to be unintended consequences, but we have to realize the idea and the motivation behind this is not truly, eh, let's get them to 77 wins for 77 wins sake. It's hey, more teams that are a little more competitive, we probably will get more well, offers for that's, free agents. That's up. Th- this that's is, is a driver. Players
0: Association proposal. Right, absolutely. And, and so, but it is one that there, we are now in a world where 20 years ago, again, I, I do want to understand, there is part of what has changed in baseball that is never going to change back, which is it used to be, as a veteran free agent, all you needed was one or two teams who would spend money in a crazy and really stupid manner, and everything was fine. Like, and we are now in a world where the 32-year-old who's been a great player is not gonna get a, long, a significant contract just because when he was 27, 28, 29, he was, a, he was an all-star. You know, I, Adam Jones 20 years ago would probably be weighing three-year offers from multiple teams where you're like, ah, you know, he signed for three years, you know, under current money, you know, three years, 30 mil. You know, that was a good deal for Adam Jones. Those deals are not coming back, and that's not what we're talking about here. But we are also in a system now where... Fan bases now not just expect, but are quite okay with the fact that multiple teams out there that are not like, let's take the Pirates for example. The Pirates are not in a full rebuild mode. This is not a Pirates team that you say they peaked and now they've torn it down. They've let some guys go. They, but they, but they're not in a full rebuild. I would, I would, I would argue. Correct. I agree. Well, what are the pirates doing? Again, this is a year where, free agent wise, there is, there are a lot of players out there who have been signed to very modest deals. That if you use the, you know, the dollars per war valuations, that, that. The, the industry as a whole uses. There are a lot of players out there who are available on relatively modest deals. But, but, but what are the big moves the Pirates are making?
1: They acquired Max, sorry, They acquired Eric Gonzalez and Jordan Luplo from the Indians. That's the big deal they made. The Indians are a team that have perennially been a playoff team in recent years and are still the class of the AL Central. And they have an outfield of probably a last place team and have done nothing to address it. They've talked about making trades to address it, but when there are clearly better options on the free agent market, they are not choosing to go get them. Some of that though is the Indians, look, they're spending money. They're at 130 million plus. I think for me, it's more a situation where you look at these teams who have room in their budget, are last place teams or close to last place teams, and are actively deciding we don't want to spend anything because to us, we want to pick fourth instead of sixth because right now that's what the system rewards. And so from that perspective, I get what the Players Association is doing and saying, let's propose this so that it's more meaningful and more beneficial for them to try and win 75 games, try and win 80 games, try to add players to get them to better thresholds. Because right now it's all about any any economic system. It's about what you incentivize. Mm -hmm. And Major League Baseball's Players Association is trying to change the incentives. Now, again, there's always going to be some unintended consequence that comes up we haven't thought about. But on the whole, I can see what they're doing, and I I don't think it's the worst idea in the world. And that's the key point you just made.
0: We are now in a world where everyone thinks that, okay, you know, the pushback I have heard is, is that you're just going to make bad teams worse. You know, now it's going to be impossible for them to dig out from these holes because they're going to face these penalties. And the draft is designed, okay, let's be honest, the draft is designed to keep draft bonuses down. That's the, the, the reason the draft was instituted beyond, beyond everything else was Rich Reichert signed for $205,000. Baseball owners looked at it and said, this is crazy. The... Bonus record had more than doubled in the previous seven years. 57, the bonus record. 1964, the bonus record had doubled. And so they said, "If we do a draft, we'll be able to keep bonuses down." And it did. That record was not broken until 1979. So it took another 15 years for someone to get 200 more than 205,000. It took until the, basically the nine. The, like, look at what King Griffey Jr. signed for, and it's like, wow, that was you know. 200 and something, that was a bargain. But, OK. But the other thing the draft has always been spelled out as being important is, is for competitive balance. What you just said, the incentives, what, whatever the system creates is the incentives, then that's what everyone adapts to. And what you're saying is, is, is what this proposal is saying is, is that if we want competitive balance, The current system is not doing it in the in what what the at least the Players Association believes is the optimal way. Okay, well, let's tweak this to make it more optimal. It's never going to be perfect. It's always going to have problems. But the argument being made for keeping the system as it is, is that this current system is more optimal than the proposal. And again, maybe it is, but I, I, again, I cannot emphasize, your point is a very good one, is, is that whatever the system creates as the incentives, that's what teams will adapt to. We Just because we are in a system where the, there is much value in getting the number one pick by being awful does not mean that you cannot change those incentives and all of a sudden it may be that winning 70 games is the most optimal strategy. Well, okay. That's not great, but that's better than the system as I believe that we have now.
1: The other factor that that I think can't be ignored in all this, part of the reason we are seeing more teams at this level now, again, 95 plus losses, eight teams last year, and, and a record, is because for the longest time, owner's ability to make a profit was driven by how many people they can get through the gate Mm -hmm. and with that that meant okay yes if we field a 78 win team we are going to be better off than if we field a 58 win team or a 65 win team having a little more competitiveness meant more tickets sold and more people in the ballpark and that was how they made a profit owner profits and you can say it's brilliant you can you can characterize it however you want are no longer tied to how many people come through the gate between TV contracts, between BAM money, between revenue sharing. Obviously, you make more Don't money if you, if you sell 3 million tickets. You, sell, you do make more money than Absolutely. if you sell a million. But, but you're going to finish in the black pretty much no matter what. And, uh, and, right
0: the, and the other part of it is is that the marginal cost, if you said, again, what we're talking about right now, under the current system, we just talked about the Orioles, almost every dollar that of discretionary money. When I say discretionary, you have to pay the minimum, no matter. Richie Martin's going to make the minimum for you. You have to field a team, so you're going to pay that. But almost every other dollar that they are spending this year is on sunk cost in contracts that they're, they're stuck with Chris Davis's contract, things like that. Under the current system, again, I don't fault them for this. Under the current system, they could spend an additional $15, 20000000 million this year to improve this team to take it from 55, 50 wins to 65 or 70. And from a purely accounting standpoint, you cannot make the financial case for that. Like what you're saying, you could spend 20 million, you're not gonna make an additional 20 million in revenue from more fans coming through the ballpark for that. Under the current system, and you're right, the most of their money they get, the TV checks they get, the, you know, the BAM money, all that, is not going to be affected one whit by that. So under the current system, there is no financial advantage. What we're saying is, is but if you change it to where the competitive balance advantage is, is to do that, then all of a sudden, you've changed the equation.
1: And at the end of the day, again, this is economics and Economics 101, it's whatever the incentives are. I, I'm going to be interested to see if this proposal gains any traction. I, I know you wrote it up as a, as a proposal, as an idea. I think for me, I can see both sides of it, right? I can see, okay, yes, we need to change the incentives in order to get more teams to be more competitive because having almost a third of the league lose 95 plus games a year every year and most fan bases knowing that's going to be the outcome from the opening day is not good for the long-term economic health and, and overall fan interest in the game. By the same token, I can also see messing with the draft and all of a sudden you've got teams that are losing 90 plus games and actually trying but they just are terrible at team building and they're not picking until 22 23 every year it can help further the cycle so i can see both sides of it i'm going to be kind of curious to see what the final proposal or or if anything's accepted looks like what for you at the end of the day how strongly do you believe this is the right thing to do And, and what are the odds in your estimation that it actually becomes a part of the new reality
0: Something I think will happen. Like, I do think that there is an awareness that the current system is not, again, whether it's gonna be this or something else, I do not know. You know, we're very early stages of this. The MLBPA looking at pulling, you know, putting on my, you know, my neutral observer hat on this. The, this was very, this was a good day for the MLBPA from the standpoint that for the first time in a long time on this, they're playing offense, not defense, because really, looking at it from, again, trying to look at it from the outside. The owners want the emphasis to be on these pace of play things. The owners lose nothing on that. Again, and I'm not saying, I am saying, I've been adamant on Twitter about this. We have pace of play issues. Now I'll say, pace of play issues in Major League Baseball are not as bad as they are in college baseball, which I also love, but we have pace of play issues. But on that, the Players' Association is almost always on defense. The owners propose things that players do not want to do, or players want to limit the impact of. What the Players' Association has done here is broaden the discussion to, as they see it, problems of the game as far as competitiveness of the game, competitive balance, where the owners are on the defensive. Because for this, the owners do not want to be it, the discussion to be about how nowadays teams are incentivized to basically not spend it all if they're going to be bad and basically just sit out free agency. That is a discussion. The owners would prefer the discussion to be focused on uh, pitch clocks and stepping out of the box and... How, you know, and again, on
1: the field issues, whereas the Players Association is wise to to characterize it as, hey, these owners are comfortable throwing ninety five lost teams out there and raking in the money. They, right. They, so again, they, can, they can win and that. Now, if they, and
0: again, the Players Association also
1: has given on some
0: of these things that there is that they are looking at ways to also, okay, here's our proposals on pace of play. There are some other things that I will say that I think are in this proposal. I get, like Kyler Murray by himself has thrown a giant wrench into everything for, and maybe in a good way, but like when the CBA, when major league baseball put the hard slots in where basically, and I I call them hard slots because if literally no team has been willing to violate them, lose to draft picks in now a, the since 2012, since this was instituted, that's a hard system. That is like, that is a red line that no one will cross when they did that when they basically banned major league contracts, which they did and that also, it did make it much more difficult to compete for a guy like Kyler Murray with other sports. But the proposal that it will allow major league contracts to amateur two-sport athletes, that is a Pandora's box that, again, maybe it's fine, but I will say, you, you, you allow that option and for one, generally major league contracts for draftees, especially for high school draftees, it's a terrible idea. You start their option clock way too early, and that is part of the reason that the, the world is littered with failed two-sport athletes who play baseball, is because you had to push them fast. But the second part is, I don't care how you try to define that. If I've got a college baseball player, which again, college baseball players getting major league contracts, a little bit different story, because they ideally should, if they succeed, they should be there in time to, so, you know, three options, you should be ready, big league ready. But I promise you, I can find, if I'm an agent, I can find a school that will let my top college player, hit position player, pitcher, whatever, play another sport. And Again, I know you could set up advisory committees and all that, but it is going to be very hard to ever draw a line where you say X player you know, is, not, does not, is not a good enough golfer to say that he's a two-sport, or he's not a good enough bowler, or he's not a good enough basketball player. Right.
1: Senior year in high school, if your high school offers bowling, you pick it up and say, hey, I'm a two-sport athlete. I can get a mid-state well, like That's what we okay, are talking to, about. To take it
0: to the extreme, I promise you to take... When Bryce Harper was looking for a junior college. I promise you, you could have found a junior college that had been quite willing to let Bryce Harper play basketball for them, to get Bryce Harper on the baseball team. And, okay, well, he's a junior college, you know, he's a two-sport guy now. Like, okay, why, you know, well, what's the, what's the delineation? Well, he's not, he's not a significant prospect. It, it, it
1: starts getting subjective. Right, and that's, and that's what I'm
0: saying. That's a, that is a... That is a uh, Pandora's box. Like, there are some other interesting things in this.
1: Um, You know, the DH. Universal DH is something that, one of the things that I, a lot of these proposals, when I look at them, I see positives, I see negatives. I can kind of see both sides of things. The universal DH for me is one that should just happen. It's been long enough. And and I'm kind of a baseball purist. But... Pitchers are hitting, I believe it's 115 with a 144 on base, and I got to tell you, as someone who grew up in Southern California, spent half his life watching American League Baseball, half his life watching National League Baseball, and now covering both, it's not close what the more entertaining product is. And, And at the end of the day, baseball is an entertainment product. And I think that it will be one of the things that will help and will also help pl- other older players keep more jobs well, if you have would, the universal deal. I was interested
0: with that. I do think that there is, like, when you talk about law of unintended consequences, it would help as far as there are, it would, it would potentially help star players like get maybe that extra year on the deal where it's like, okay, when their defense tails off, we can have a DH possibility. Again, I saw someone cited last night that one of the reasons that the Mets would be were willing to kind of make the Cano deal is, is their belief the DH is gonna to come to the NL and if it does, then Robinson Cano can play a lot of DH. Okay, I get that. At the same time, we're not in a world, I mean, one of the things now is is that very, very few American league teams have a DH. Like have a guy who you say, this is their DH. Most teams now use that as kind of a a rotating, you know, like if you
1: said, who are the best DHs? Chris Davis, J.D. Martinez, those are super, Those are stars. I mean, right. but, and both those guys still got some time in the outfield, but they play 40, 45 games in the outfield and 110 at DH. Right, they're, which again, they're, that's they're, not the same as though, but when you see... It's not the same as David Ortiz, hey, you, he's the DH every day, right. but you what, can still what, when get But you say that, though, but that's a very different
0: thing, though. That really is. Like, J.D. Martinez is not a player, like, J.D. Martinez... On, a, on, a, in a, on an NL team right now, is a very plausible player. You know, like, if it was an NL, he signed with the Red Sox, but if J.D. Martinez in left field has been a perfectly he fungible... He did just play
1: for the Diamondbacks and he could absolutely Davis, do it Chris Davis, there's
0: no scenario where you go, well, Chris, Chris Davis, you know, but David Ortiz, like you just talked about, David Ortiz was a DH. David Ortiz, under the current system, basically was limited to 15 teams that were plausible teams for him. Because... No one for the second half of Big Poppy's career was going to say, yeah, we're comfortable with him being our first baseman every day. And so that my point, yeah, again, it's, a, it's taking it maybe a little too far, but it's not like it's gonna free up these like 10 jobs like where there's gonna be, I would say if this proposal passes, you're not gonna see NL teams go out and say, okay, we're hitting the free agent market to add a DH. They're gonna all say, almost without a fail, say, our plan is is that we're gonna rotate it around, and you know, we've got this guy who's gonna be our primary DH. But, like, yes, like the Braves would say, Oh, Johan is gonna play more third base, and Josh Donaldson's gonna play more DH. You know, the the Phillies would say, you know what, Reese Hoskins is gonna play first base and some DH. But my point is, is it's not like that there's going to all of a sudden be the spending spree of teams going out there to spend to acquire a veteran VH.
1: But, but you hit the point earlier where you talked about, for again, using David Ortiz mm-hmm. as example, there were only 15 teams who would ever offer to compete for these services. And that is the driving point behind all these proposals is the Major League Baseball Players Association is trying to expand the pool of teams who will compete for these players that's the driving force mm-hmm. between the draft pick penalties more teams trying to win more games need to actually go get better players universal dh the pool of potential teams doubles all these are things that the players association believes will help their the people they're trying to represent and i don't i think that's that's their mission that's what they should do we'll see what passes and what doesn't but but i do think the overarching point you made of the players association is being proactive here they have put forth a proposal it's gotten out into the public which uh, no one should ever think is a mistake and and I do think that it has, it is at the very least it will help the Players Association look a little more like, okay we're being active and trying to help our membership rather than just being reactive. Whether they get any or all of these things I think is very TBD, but I think if nothing else, they've changed the discussion about them. I mean I've been, for a story I'm working on just talking to some people around and Mostly every review of the Players Association, its leadership, is not just negative, but overwhelmingly negative. I think by doing this, they can now say, hey, we are we have actively done something to again try and help our members create a situation where more teams are going to be incentivized to offer them contracts. And now they can turn and say, if the owners say no to this, they're the bad guys. It's not us failing to do our jobs. It's the owners, you know, intentionally now, not in the shadows, but intentionally saying, Nope, we're not open to any of that. They've changed the conversation, and I think that was probably but, a, a wise move.
0: Again, and the, the last one I did want you know, there's others here like that. It does seem like there's some agreement on limiting mound visits, which I know there are going to be people who listen to this because I, I hear from them on Twitter. There are going to be people who say, you know, if you don't like, why would I not like more baseball? More baseball is good. Give me a six-hour baseball game. For one, I like for baseball to continue to add fans and the argument that people who have no problem with pace of play generally make is is essentially I like baseball as it is and if that means that no one else discovers and likes baseball hey great because it's more for me I don't understand that argument I like want baseball to both be popular among fans I've yet to hear anyone argue that another mound visit increases their enjoyment of the game I've never heard someone who says that a pitcher, Pedro Baez sitting there and staring at the catcher for 25 seconds makes the game better for them. Like their argument always seems to be, it doesn't bother me, so why would other, other people be bothered by it? But I do think it's important that like, there seems to be some agreement on some of these things that like, okay, we're gonna see some more tweaks on them. but But I do think also, Matt Eddy's going to have a column up at Baseball America, hopefully today, uh, as you listen to this, of another suggestion. But forcing pitchers to face at least three batters an inning. I'm surprised that this is coming from the Players Association.
1: I am too. And this is one, again, just me. I don't care for that one, but it's not my proposal.
0: Okay, so, I mean, I am all about... I remember there was a playoff game a couple of years ago. I think it was the Giants.
1: Well, the, the Nationals, Dodgers, and the 2016 NLDS, that's, that's the archetype here. When Dusty Baker went through, I forget if it was four or five relievers in the top of the seventh, but my thing is, for me, that's something that gets fixed with a market correction. Dusty Baker did that, and it cost his team. It took, his, say, it took his fans out of it. It clearly took his team out of it. It was not, and it was none of it was you smart.
0: Say, but when you say market correction... I've not seen any team since then say, wow, we'll never
1: do that. Like then and they'll keep losing. And that's for me. When you
0: say market correction, my way to correct it is, is let's again let's change the parameters of the game because I do think if you talk about for the normal fan, especially again, we are a TV game at this point as much as it is. I mean we just talked about the revenue comes as much from TV and online as it does from fans in the stands. But for wherever you are, if you're at the ballpark or if you are watching a game, two three in-inning pitching changes in a half inning oh,
1: there's no question. It's is the
0: most painful. I don't care how much you love baseball. That is just dead time. That is just that is when you hope that you're actually a little bit behind on the game if you're at home. So you confess, or if I'm watching on com, you know, like I'm jumping to another game because it is, there's nothing, there's nothing beneficial about it. And when we talk about the strategy, I love the strategy of baseball, but that's not generally, like that's not something where I'm having a whole lot of fun second guessing, you know. Oh, yep, they're going to the third reliever of the inning. Okay, you know, like again, it is something that brings the game in the set, in the, at the point of the game where it should be the most exciting it often brings the game to a screeching halt. And I'm kind of interested, again, I don't think that this proposal as they have it, I think Matt Eddy's proposal, which we'll have up later today, is a better one. But I am interested that it is being proposed because I thought that this was something that would be proposed by the owners and the players would then potentially agree or not agree. For the
1: players to
0: propose it, I don't see a reason why the owners would not be interested in doing something like this.
1: It's definitely going to be interesting seeing how this all shakes out. Uh, JJ, you're, uh, your tank tax has gone mainstream. Congratulations, and uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens.
0: It's fun to see where this goes. And there's a lot more. Uh, you know, this is, again, all of this should be in some ways fun. Look, let's be honest. This is one of the most interesting things. It has been a
1: brutally boring offseason. This is the most interesting thing that has happened during the Major League Baseball offseason thus far, at least, especially since the calendar turned to 2019. I think at minimum you can say that. No question. Yeah.
0: So, you know, so again, I, these are not all the answers, but having the debate, having the discussion is a good thing to do.
1: Absolutely. Well, that will do it for another edition of uh, the Baseball America podcast. For J.J. Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody.